Welcome to Women in Trade, a podcast for up-and-coming professionals like you in the field of international trade. Kelly Kemock is your guide on this journey, an accomplished lawyer and trade compliance consultant who's passionate about helping young women navigate this complex field, equipping you with the tools and resources you'll need to pursue an exciting and meaningful career. You'll hear candid interviews with other successful female leaders and benefit from their experience. It's time to build the career of your dreams. Here's your host, Kelly Kemock. Today we have Lila Landis on the show and we'll be asking her about her career path. So welcome and thank you for talking with us today. If you could just tell us about yourself and about how you got into trade compliance and where you are today. Great. Thank you so much for inviting me to to talk to your listeners. So I started in trade compliance really by falling into it. And I I think a lot of people who are in the field didn't set out and go major in trade compliance as a as a degree and and know that they were they were going to do that. I studied languages in high school and in college, and I majored in international business because I, I wanted to be able to use languages and I wanted to be able to travel but I, I really didn't want to be a teacher. I didn't want to be a translator. So I majored in international business, not quite sure what I was going to do with that, but you know that I would have some kind of international scoped job. So then I started working in an international customer service position for a big um, industrial manufacturer uh-huh. and using my Spanish skills, serving clients in Latin America. And from there, you know, started working with their export coordinators who were really logistics people who were uh, working with freight forwarders, uh, coordinating the exports, and you know, started learning about incoterms and international logistics and things like that. It's like, okay, this is pretty interesting. Uh, while I was still at that same company, I was approached to go to one of their divisions for an inside sales role for Latin America. And one of the questions they asked me in the interview was, do you know Incoterms? And I said, yes, yeah, I'm familiar with Incoterms you know, from working with the export coordinators. And, and the one interviewer whispers to the other one, we should just hire her now because <laughs> they'd been struggling so much with, with Incoterms with all the international business that they were doing that really that was, that was just a big thing for them to have someone who understood them and could, uh, could advise them on that. So Moved into that role and you know, was helping them with Incoterms on their contracts. And then from there, you know, they started getting these customers asking for these NAFTA certificates. Like, I don't, I don't really know what this is, but here, you know, can you, can you do this for me? So I uh, was living in Milwaukee at that time, and I sought out the Milwaukee World Trade Association and was able to get some NAFTA training for them. And uh, then, you know, after that, just kind of got bitten by the bug, I think, for trade compliance, decided that it's what I wanted to make my career in. Excellent. I think that's a reoccurring theme we are hearing is we didn't know it existed. We didn't know we liked it. And until we were given the opportunity, then we realized that's what we wanted to do. My my story is someone gave a presentation at my law school and he came with like a pen that like lit up and like had a recording device and like had all these like different devices on the pen itself. And he was just talking about how classification can be like, how would you classify this? Is it a pen? Is it a microphone? Is it a, you know, that kind of thing uh, and how complex it is. And I was like, wow that is interesting because I was worried that my career would be boring and uh, getting into trade compliance is definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, I think it it still takes a particular type of person to be attracted to the trade compliance field though. Great. Well, what would you say uh, would be, would make a great compliance person? Like I think someone who enjoys details and is detail oriented. And so to me, that's, that's one of the signs that I look for when I'm hiring someone who's going to be on my team in a trade compliance capacity is really, you know, someone who's able to, to dig into the details of of what's going on. You mentioned classification. It would be really easy for you to just look at something on the surface and choose a classification and be wrong, right? We know that in, in our field, whether it's harmonized tariff codes or it's ECCNs or USML, that the details matter and that they can significantly change the result that you end up with. So I think 
some being someone who enjoys digging into those types of details is something that makes people more successful in, in a trade compliance capacity. And really, I think having an interest in in the world is is also something that I look for, especially you know when I'm looking at like export compliance uh, in particular. I think you really have to stay on top of what's happening in in the world because you you need to have kind of an anticipatory mindset of I know that there may be sanctions coming because there's this there's conflict going on right now, and so uh, you know I look for people who who try to stay aware of. Um, you know, generally what's going on in the world, what's going on with with um, some of those international politics, because I think it helps you be a much better trade compliance professional doing that kind of horizon scanning and in thinking about how do you prepare your program for those kinds of changes. Excellent. Yes, because we're definitely called upon to do some like future telling <laughs> to a crystal ball and, and tell the company what's going to happen, but um, <laughs> can't always do that. Right. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, so it seemed like your training was on the job training and that's great. Like you, you were able to, you know, further your career just by taking on more responsibilities in your current role. But then um, I noticed on your LinkedIn profile, you have the Kuseko designation. Is that how you say it? Kuseko. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what made you go after that, um, that certification and how has it helped you? So when I decided that I really wanted to make trade compliance a career for myself, uh, one of the things that I did is I used LinkedIn and I went and I looked at people in the field who had more senior level positions. So I was looking you know, five, 10, 15 years out from where I was, where did I want to be? And how did the people who were in those positions get there? So I really wanted to see what were the common themes in terms of the type of experience that they had, the types of certifications, types of education. And to me, three things kept coming up. LCB, broker's license, and everybody in trade compliance knows that that's a, that's a big certification to have, um, an excellent credential. An MBA, so definitely in the more senior positions, um, senior manager, director level and above, MBA is very common. Uh, and then the last was Cuseco. Really on the export certification side, it was the closest equivalent that I found to a broker's license. Uh, of course, there's no direct equivalent to a broker's license on the export side because there's nothing that's actually certified by the U.S. government. Uh, but to me, it was, it was the closest equivalent. I felt that the the title of QSECO, as far as a certified U.S. export compliance officer, denoted a higher level position than some of the other certifications out there that use like specialist in the title. So I felt it was better from a career growth standpoint. And the exam for QSECO was is very similar to the broker's exam in terms of the breadth of what it covers and the the structure of how they they do the exam. Uh, so that's that's really why I chose that. At what point in someone's career would they have to choose import or export? Because, I mean, I took the broker's exam. I don't feel like it's limited me to import, but if I wanted to actually, like, get, like, understand export, I probably would have to get the Kuseko as well. So where where do you have to decide this? Like, do you have to decide import and export? Or what would you say, you know, would go into that decision? I'm not sure that you do have to decide. I feel like it's it's quite possible to do both. Uh, I mean, it really depends on the type of company that you're at and the size of the company as well. I would say a lot of small to medium-sized companies have very small trade compliance teams that are going to be really juggling both import and export. So there's plenty of opportunities for you to be able to, to flex between the two and, and handle both importing and exporting. Uh, I think it's something where... It kind of depends on how someone gets into the industry to start out with. Uh, so, you know, there's different different paths to getting into trade compliance. You know, I talked about my path, which was starting at for an importer exporter in a customer service role and really focused on the export side. And um, but, you know, a lot of people may start out working for a freight forwarder or for a customs broker that way. Uh, but I I think that there's a a lot of knowledge and skills that can transfer back and forth between import and export. And so I don't think it's something where you have to say, you know, I've chosen the, the, the import path at the fork in the road. And so now I'm stuck on imports forever. 
I think there's definitely an opportunity to be able to do to do both. Um, but in terms of certifications, that really depends on the industry, right? Because you can do exports in an industry that doesn't really have a lot that's controlled, where you're more focused on classifications, on EEI filings, um, on, you know, maybe CTPAT for exporters or, you know, helping, you know, the importer on the other side, things like that. Um, versus being in an industry where it's highly controlled and maybe you're going to be doing a lot more work on the licensing side of things. And as an export professional, uh, and even like with the Cruseco designation, how much of that is U.S. based and how much do you need to know like foreign countries export regulations? So the QSECO is definitely all U.S. based. That is, you know, when you are taking the exam for QSECO, it is based on EAR, ITAR, OFAC, a little bit of census, um, right? So that's that's definitely U.S. based. Uh, in my in in my world, in the positions that I've held, I have had to learn export controls and export and import regulations for other countries just based on this the scope that I've had. Uh, so in my previous position, I was building a global trade compliance program that was um, in multiple regions uh, for the, the company that I was working for, Poly One. Uh, so building out a European trade compliance team, you have to be able to, to talk about European trade compliance regulations. You know, and they have their own export controls, um, both at an EU level and then also at an individual country level. Same with the import regulations. You have some things that are particular to the country, and then you have things that are governed by the EU. Uh, and so there's a lot of nuances there. But I think that that's really something that as trade becomes more dynamic and as you have more companies who are looking at trade as being more than just U.S. export focused, that there's going to be a greater demand for that from our trade compliance professionals to really think more globally and multi-jurisdictional in terms of what regulations apply and how do we comply with them. When you are looking to hire somebody, how much do these three things weigh in your decision? Their years of experience or what their experience is in, their level of curiosity and attention to detail, and just, you know, do they have the mindset to be a trade professional? And then, you know, finally, what certifications they have on a piece of paper? Like, how do those play out from a hiring perspective? So I would say, you know, that the curiosity and the attention to detail are things that are really, really important to me. So if I'm interviewing someone, they could have a great resume and all the certifications. And if I get no feeling from them that there's an attention to detail or there's any curiosity in the field, that's probably not someone that I want on my team, just because I feel like then that's going to be someone who is probably looking for me to just give them a cookbook where it's it's all laid out for them and they they get to just follow step by step and be done and that's kind of uncommon in our industry. You, you run into a lot of situations where you have to go figure it out. You have new regulations, you have updates to regulations, you have just, just brand new situations that you run into where I may not have a written process for every single situation you encounter. And so someone who lacks any kind of curiosity is gonna struggle in that kind of environment. Um, so that's really important to me. And then I would say experience would be would be second. I would look at how many years, but also what the experience is in. Um, you know, again, I think that someone who has a more varied experience, sometimes I see that as an asset because it tells me they can learn new things versus someone who may have been doing the exact same role for a very long time. And maybe their skills have, have become kind of stagnant. Um, certifications, I'm, I'm listing that last, not because it's not important, but it's just, it's one piece of the pie. And to me, just because someone has a certification doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be well-versed in all of the regulations or the specific ones that are really of relevance for the role or for my team. Mm -hmm. I feel like my first job in a trade compliance, I had zero experience, but because I had a law degree, I kind of got my foot in the door. So yes. maybe 
Having one of these three things could get your foot in the door. Having all of the things could get you a more senior position, maybe. But, like, they all play – I think they all play off each other. And, of course, it depends on your hiring manager. I mean, everyone's different, right? Absolutely. But I would say one of the things for me is uh, I had resumes be sent to me by HR before to be screened for doing a phone interview. And I've seen basic spelling mistakes and I will just write them off. I'm not, I'm not even going to do a phone interview with that person. And I've had HR challenge me like, oh, it's, you know, it's no big deal. They just had one misspelling. But to me, it is a big deal because I'm talking about putting someone into a position where details matter. And so then if you haven't spell checked your resume, which ought to be the most spell checked document that you ever have, <laughs> then you don't have enough attention to detail to work in a trade compliance position. So, you know, that's that's the sort of thing where that tells me something about that person that they they didn't pay attention to their resume, a super important document mm-hmm. before they sent it to me. And really part of it is it's personal preference to someone that reports to me if they have poor spelling and grammar and I'm always having to read their emails with poor spelling and grammar. It's just going to make me frustrated and I'm not going to be a good leader to them. And that's that's not fair to either one of us, because I am definitely one who prefers to have uh, have good spelling and grammar in my emails. But that's just that's just me, the, the language person. Yeah, well, you know what kind of team you want to build. And so that's a good leader, too. You want to you pay attention and you you thoughtfully put together your team. So that's in, that's a good quality, I think. I want to go back to what you said about someone who has a role where it's, you know, step by step. If A, then B. If B, then C. Do this, then that. Don't think, just do. Yeah. <laughs> like that kind of role, I wanted to talk about automation and how that kind of role is being eliminated. And I I used to work at um, Thomson Reuters on their software, just for full disclosure. So I kind of have um, kind of a skewed opinion of technology that is great and I like it, um, but I can see this like other side where, you know, maybe it's not so great. But my perspective is that those kinds of roles that you were talking about is very rote, like this and that are being eliminated by automation, but that creates more opportunity for people to research and do those things that machines can't do, like you were talking about research and everything. Absolutely. So I'm definitely in favor of technology. Um, I, I think that technology is, is going to be one of the biggest transformations for trade compliance over the next five to 10 years, where you, I think we're still at a point right now where global trade management software is reserved for your billion dollar companies and up. And even there are plenty of billion dollar companies who don't use any global trade management software. Uh, but I think that that is really going to change, that there's there's a lot where this is going to to just get a lot more penetration within the industry. And you're going to see a lot more importers and exporters making use of at least some of the most basic tools that global trade management software can offer. But the software can only do so much. And to me, one of the big limitations is on um, the, the data that's going into it. So it's it's a classic software thing of, of garbage in, garbage out. And a lot of times, um, importer and exporters really don't have very good product data from an, a trade compliance perspective in terms of the way that the product descriptions are set up or the, the information on, on country of origin, the way that their sourcing is set up. And so there's only so much that a software can do when you don't have good data management up front. So I think that there's there's things that this that global trade management software does really well today. For the most part, restricted party screening is something that is a really good use of global trade management software, right? Because you don't you don't want to be sitting there screening thousands of, of individuals one by one. So it's it's great to use that. You still need human intervention there though. It's not a completely hands-off. If you think about with restricted party screening, um, especially you know in, in today's global sourcing environment where you have plenty of suppliers who are in Asia Pacific, you may be using non-English characters. And so then a lot of the restricted party screening softwares really struggle um, with, uh, with non-English characters. You have a lot of um, company names that are going to partially match because you have a lot of restricted parties who purposely use really vague 
and common company names to try to evade sanctions. So there's there's definitely things that technology is um, is is taking away as a need for human intervention, but it it causes additional need for human intervention as well. And there are always going to be things where you need a human with the ability to to reason and logic through things and do additional research to be able to do that. And even a human to interpret maybe what what the computer is telling them and then turn it into like a, a business proposal or decision, right? Like half of our job, I feel like, is translating trade compliance speech into uh, like logistics or the business side of things. Yeah. Like, here are the options. You can get a license. You can change this. And then, and then they do the analysis of maybe this costs more. There's risk here, all of this. So you kind of, that, that communication back and forth, I think you need a, you know, a human to do that as well. Just, you know, the outreach to other groups. Absolutely. And I think that that's really one of the most important roles that a trade compliance professional can play within a business is understanding the regulations and then translating those into options for the business, you know, because it's it's something where I think kind of an old school mindset of trade compliance has been that we're like police who are going to just say no to everything. And that doesn't really do anybody any good because what you communicate out is that don't come to me and ask me questions because I'll just tell you you can't do it. And so then you're you're creating blinders within your company because people just don't want to 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 go to someone who they view as obstructionist. Right. So the, the other way to do things is uh, like to say, instead of saying no, but is to say yes. And, you know, to say, okay, we, we want to be able to do this shipment. Here's how we can do it. Right. Here's what, here's what that would require versus no, you just can't do it. Uh, so I think that that's, that's part of how we as, as trade compliance professionals really show the value that trade compliance can bring to the company, because it's about, enabling business while protecting the organization. And that means following the regulations, but finding a way to make the regulations work for you. And that's where the MBA comes in, right? You have to understand business as well as trade compliance to be Absolutely. in the role, it seems like. So just to wrap up this topic, we talked about the role, we talked about automation. Where do you see the future of the profession? Where is trade compliance going? What will it look like in the future? So I think there's there's going to be really a lot more emphasis on including your trade compliance professionals much earlier in business decisions. I think right now we're still seeing trade compliance as a bit of an afterthought where, oh, we've decided to change our sourcing from Thailand to Malaysia and we're, we're ready to ship stuff and we have no freight forwarder set up and we don't know if we need an export license or an import permit or, you know, various different things, right? Where you're, they're, they're, they're coming to you once they've realized that they have a problem. And so I think in the future, what we're going to see instead is senior level trade compliance people having much more integrated roles with different functions within the business where they're being included and consulted in decisions that are like that that are being made up front, where when they want to change sourcing from one country to another or, you know, making serious changes to the supply chain, maybe adding in um, an intermediate country where you're going to do some assembling, really looking at that up front in terms of how does that change the way that we structure the supply chain? How does that change country of origin or our ability to use free trade agreements, free trade zones? Uh, and, and really just viewing trade compliance as an enabler to the business rather than something that's uh, simply a, a regulatory requirement. Uh, I hope that's where it's going. I think that's where it's going. And I know that, um, you know, a lot of the changes that have been going on right now uh, with both imports and exports has caused a lot of trade compliance professionals to be scrambling, trying to, to adjust and, and help, uh, help their organizations react to that. But I think long term, it's very good for our profession because it's an opportunity for us to shine. And it's an opportunity to show that automation can't take our jobs. Can you talk about being an empowered official and what that means in that title? So I am not an empowered official at Lockheed, clarify that. I was an empowered official in my previous organization. And so I, you know, what I can share about that is so when I when I joined Poly One at the time, they did not play in the ITAR space. 
Um, so it was something where the, you know, the only controls that they'd had were EAR and those were pretty minor, just typically just controlled for anti-terrorism. Uh, but then we had a business unit who was approached um, by a, um, a major handgun manufacturer who wanted them to make um, a piece part for handguns. And they were really interested in, in getting into that market, but they'd never done ITAR before. And so it was something that was brand new. So I had also never done ITAR before, so it was also brand new to me. But uh, I you know, took the took the initiative to go out and get some formal training on ITAR. So I, uh, I attended a seminar on that and tried to familiarize myself with the, the basics of ITAR controls to then be able to lay out for the business unit, if you want to play in the ITAR space, here's what has to happen, right? And so then just the basics of what does a technology control plan look like? What does a facility control plan look like? And how this would change their business moving forward. And based on that, they were able to, to weigh those, uh, those requirements against what they saw as the potential business for them with not just this one customer who'd approached them, but also what the potential market was for them to then pursue other ITAR opportunities. And ultimately they decided that it was worth it to move forward. Um, so at that point then um, we started building an ITAR program for that business unit. I think it was a really interesting experience partially because we're talking about creating an ITAR program for one business unit within a larger company that did not have an ITAR program. So trying to segregate what was EAR controlled versus what was ITAR controlled, I think was really interesting. And I actually found that there were, there was really not many resources out there on how to do that. It seemed like most of the companies that play in that ITAR space are all ITAR, uh, you know, then it's kind of one or the other, but um, you know, becoming an empowered official was something that was, was new to the company since they were new to ITAR. And so I had to sit down with my, my leader, who was the director of, of logistics and his leader, the, the vice president of supply chain, and really explain what this meant to designate an empowered official and the, um, the, uh, the authority and the autonomy that I would need to be able to ensure that we were managing ITAR appropriately. I think that was definitely something that was new. The idea that you know someone would say, no, you can't ship that and really mean no. But that's part of what it means to be an empowered official is that your role is to ensure ITAR compliance. And the empowered official is a designation um, given under regulation, right? So the right. government is, it's a government title, essentially? Yes. Okay. Yes, it, it is. And so when, when, when we went about designating me as the empowered official, I actually drafted a letter for them to, to sign that included the reference to the regulations to specify, okay, this is, this is what it is, this is what this means, and we're designating this person as an empowered official. And is it true that being an empowered official, you're the one who goes to jail if something goes wrong? <laughs> uh, I not necessarily, you know. So uh, I would say it's so similar to the responsibility you hold as a licensed customs broker, if you're familiar with that on the import side. So yes, you have a responsibility as a designated compliance person for what's going on in your compliance program. But at the same time, there's only so much that you as one person can do. So it's it's perfectly possible that as an empowered official, you know, they use the business wants to export something without a license that requires a license. And you say, no, stop the shipment. And they go forward anyway. That's not your fault. And and so then it's it's not reasonable to expect that you would go to jail for that. But you have, need to have documented that. You knew it needed a license. You told them it needed a license. They wanted to ship it anyway. You told them not to ship it and they still did it, right? So it's, un unfortunately, if you're anybody who's in a situation like that, it's going to come down to covering yourself, making sure that you've given the correct compliance instructions and you've documented that, but there's only so much that you can do. And unfortunately, it, Anyone who finds themselves in a situation like that at a company where they're willing to overrule you as either an empowered official or a licensed broker, it's time for you to search for a new job. 
Well, and are, do you have a responsibility to be a whistleblower at that point, saying, um, I don't like what's happening here, and you have to just let the government know, or, or you just would say no? I mean, that that's, that's tough. That's a tough situation. I think that's a personal question that each person is going to have to ask themselves as far as, as how they feel about those things. Um, but I, I would say part of what needs to come into that is even though retaliation may be against company policy or illegal, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And so then you have to consider the fact that being a whistleblower, even internally or externally, could have real consequences for, for your employment. And are you prepared to deal with those consequences? And so that's why, you know, to me, I would say looking for another position to be able to get out of that environment where you're, you're being stuck you know, uh, being overruled and they're, they're doing things that are legal definitely should be your first priority. And then if you, if you can secure other employment, then, then yes, I think that you should be a whistleblower, but you need to look out for yourself and your family. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know what I would do in that situation. I wanted to ask you about differences in industry because you've been in a couple different industries, if I'm yeah. Correct. Okay. And so how do, how do the regulations differ between what I think I saw, like you had an oil and gas company, chemicals yeah. maybe, uh, mm-hmm. and defense? Sure. So I think that to me, it's not the regulations that really make the biggest difference between the industries. In my experience, it's been the culture. It's been the company culture and the culture of the industry that is very, very different between different industries. So oil and gas, and anyone who has worked in oil and gas will will recognize it. It's really a company culture of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And there's very much a desire to just ship it, get it out the door. It's oil and gas. There are no restrictions. And so then, you know, it's we're going to use the same HTS code for everything, and it's all EAR 99. So just it's a very difficult environment for a trade compliance professional because their their culture is is already set up to be one that um, doesn't want to have to deal with trade compliance. So you're you're really fighting against the tide. Um, it doesn't mean that you know the the work isn't necessary or 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 something that's valuable to do. It's just a very difficult different difficult culture to operate in uh, from that perspective. Uh, when I worked in oil and gas, they were the, one of the companies that I worked for. They were using the same harmonized tariff code for absolutely everything that they were exporting when I started there. It was 84, 31, 43, 80, 65, I believe, parts of oil and gas. You can still recall that. Nice. Yes. And so, you know, and I'm looking at a, an invoice that they're sending out. I'm like, this is a diesel engine. I'm like, yeah, parts of oil and gas. Like, no, not parts of oil and gas. GRI 1, AO nominee, this has its own HTS code. You can't just call this all parts of oil and gas. But it was, you know, what's the simplest, easiest thing for us to get it out? Uh, so I think, you know, that's that's kind of that culture. In in chemicals, I would say they're, they're a little more open to looking at, you know, regulatory compliance because they already have so much regulatory compliance that happens in terms of EPA. Tosca, uh, things like that, and so then there, there's already some of that within the within the industry. So it's a little easier to then take that a step further and talk about the trade compliance regulations. And there are things that are just necessities for them. So in terms of importing chemicals, Tosca is going to come up when you're importing chemicals, and so then there's more reliance on trade compliance for that. And then that makes the trade compliance function a little more valuable. Um, I would say it's it's still something where on the export side, you struggle a little bit to to get an understanding that there really are export controls that apply to to some of the things that they're they're exporting. But at least, you know, with the, the need for EPA compliance, you typically have um, product stewardship is is typically a function within chemical companies, and so then it's easy to make a connection there too. You have a compliance function for some of these chemical regulations. You also have to have a compliance function for trade. Uh, defense is just a whole different world because 
you it's very, very U.S. export compliance focused where I've never worked in another industry where salespeople were actually talking about ITAR regulations and needing to get ITAR licenses in advance and, you know, citing ITAR exemptions that we were going to use and things like that. That was just amazing to me that there's that level of compliance knowledge outside of trade compliance. Um, but in defense, it's just a fact of life because they know that everything pretty much everything you're shipping is ITAR controlled. And so they have to be aware of it. And so then compliance is, is much more integrated into the fabric of that company culture. Um, but I would say, you know, one of the differences there is that it's very U.S. export compliance focused. And so then there's still transformation happening within, within the industry, I believe, to really take a more global uh, perspective on trade compliance and understanding that you still have multi-jurisdictional compliance. If you want to be able to re-export an ITAR-controlled item from another country, sure, you need your U.S. export re-export authorization, but you've also got military controls and, and regular export controls in the country that you're exporting it from. So really just a shift happening to view this as more dynamic and it goes beyond just U.S. regulations and U.S. extraterritoriality. And I love that you have gotten so much experience in, in different industries, too, because I'd like to point that out to people coming into the field is look how varied your career can be. You know, it you can learn you could be in three different industries, but yet doing the same job. Like, I love that about it. Yeah, I think there are some I would say that there are some parts of trade compliance, some industries that tend to be very insular in that you have to kind of get in early to to be able to continue in in that industry to me textiles is like that it's it's always been kind of its own animal within the trade compliance field i feel like if you have no textile experience it's hard to get into a trade compliance role for textiles and because they have so many of their own special compliance things that they they have to go through um, aerospace can be that way, and I'm sure that that's something that you've seen as well, where a lot of times there's a strong preference for someone who already has aerospace knowledge because it's viewed as being very particular within the field. But I think there's definitely, like I mentioned, with being able to switch back and forth between import-export or having a role that covers both, there's definitely opportunities to work for different industries. And it's nice because it gives you a different flavor for the, the type of trade compliance regulations you can deal with. And I think that kind of varied experience can be really valuable to an organization because you come in with a different perspective and different thinking than maybe some, some folks who have always worked in that same exact industry. They don't have the, we've done it this way. We've always done it this way mindset. Right. Can I ask you if you have any any insight as to your biggest career mistake? Have you made any mistakes in your career that maybe other people can avoid or you can uh, provide advice on? So, yes, I would say certainly I've definitely made mistakes in my career. Everyone makes mistakes in their, their career. And the most important thing is to really understand that you know, what What was the mistake, why was it a mistake, and what can I learn from that? So I would say early on in my career, I, I really felt like there was one right answer for where trade compliance should report to within an organization. In my mind, that was legal. I felt like trade compliance, you're dealing with legal regulations, you're talking about protecting the company by making sure that we're complying with those legal regulations. The legal department seems to be a natural fit. I felt like the legal department had you know, the weight or the gravitas within the company to mm -hmm. be able to affect compliance. And so that was really where I felt that trade compliance belonged. And I, I call that a mistake because I've now reported to multiple different departments across my career. And what I've learned from that is that the particular department you report to, the name of that department does not matter. I don't believe it matters. What I found really matters is the head of that department, how they view trade compliance or global trade, how they view what your group does and whether it adds value to the organization and how the company culture overall views trade compliance. That's what's much more important. So I did actually have the opportunity to, to be part of the legal department in one of the, the job roles that I had. 
And it was the worst experience that I had in trade compliance. Um, So I was the only non-lawyer within the, the legal group. And so then not having a JD behind my name, that team really just didn't view me as fitting within legal. And they didn't respect the subject matter expertise that I brought to the group. So they really viewed that without being a lawyer, that you can't competently speak to any of the regulatory uh, statutes and that you you wouldn't be able to say what is or isn't compliant. You know, even though I'm like, OK, you're a lawyer, but have you studied 15 CFR or 19 or 22? Do you know the OFAC regulations? You know, these are these are things where. They didn't have any particular experience in trade compliance, but they felt that being a lawyer gave them more authority than me. So I really thought I belonged in legal until I actually worked for legal, and I will not make that mistake again. <laughs> it definitely depends on the organization. And so I think that where trade compliance falls within an organization, ultimately, it tells you a little something about how that organization views trade compliance. So that's helpful in thinking about how the company culture uh, is in terms of, of how trade compliance is going to be viewed. But really, the, the leader that you're reporting up through is much more important than the particular department or function. That is life-changing for me. I have made myself a rule. It's a hard and fast rule in my career that I will not be in a company trade compliance group again unless it's in legal. So I, I am really taking this to heart because that actually I don't want to make the same mistake that you are saying that you made, but that's so shocking that I, I made myself that rule. Well, and I'm not saying that legal is, is always the wrong choice. I'm just saying that I don't think that there is one right choice where there's a there is a hard and fast rule that applies across all industries, across all companies. Because I think it's perfectly possible for you to be a trade compliance person reporting into finance and just have fantastic leadership support that enables you to do the things that you really want to do to have a great trade compliance program for that organization. And it's perfectly possible to have that in supply chain or in procurement or in logistics or in legal. It's just that it really depends on the organization and the leader. I made the rule because of a bad experience working in the supply chain, being part of the supply chain, not being valued, no one listens. You know, we have to use, we had to use scare task tactics to get people to listen to us, quote, quote, fines and penalties every time. And uh, it just, it wasn't a good corporate culture. It wasn't, what you're saying is, it wasn't necessarily because I was in supply chain. It was that the corporate culture wasn't supporting me like it should. So mm-hmm. whether you're in supply chain or legal, if the corporate culture supports you, you will do you will do better. Absolutely. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you for that. It's one of the hardest things to suss out when you're interviewing with a company. It's really difficult to get a feel for the, the company culture. You know, there are definitely questions that you can ask, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a candid answer from the people that are, are interviewing with you. But it's one of the most important things that you can do when trying to determine if you're going to join an organization or not is getting a feel for what their company culture is like. And so you just kind of have to read between the lines and listen to both what is said and what is not said and start to get a feel for, is this going to be a place where you're valued, where your subject matter expertise is respected and considered, or is it going to be a place where you're constantly going to be fighting for any recognition? I'd have to think about that one. How would you, what would you ask in an interview to gauge corporate culture? That's probably the most difficult question ever. So I think it it depends a little bit on the role, but one of the things is, so for me, oftentimes when I've been brought onto an organization, it's because they have recognized that they have a need for a trade compliance program and they're looking for someone to come in and build one for them. So then what I want to hear from them is, why do you think you need a trade compliance program to hear them talk about that? And I think that can be very telling. What do they say? in justifying why they need a trade compliance program. Did they get their hands slapped by a regulatory agency, right? Did they suddenly get some fines? And it's, uh, well, you know, I guess I guess we ought to have somebody now. You know, it, maybe not necessarily those words, but listening to what they're saying. Are they saying 
somebody told me that I have to have a trade compliance person. And so I'm hiring a trade compliance person or is it, you know, we realized that, you know, our, our, we, we have this NAFTA program and, uh, you know, we don't feel like it's, it's as managed as well as it could be, but it's really important to our company. And so we want someone to come on and, and really do a good job with this, you know, really just listening to what are they saying about why they're filling that role. And partially it's too, you know, like you would do for any role asking about, is this a brand new position that you've just created versus is this a backfill for someone? And why did that person leave? Right. And if you're if you're hearing that that person just totally left the company and there's no one doing trade compliance right now, that tells you something about the company culture. And um, so it's it depends a lot on the role. But I think that there are some questions you can ask that helps you to get a feel for what it's like there. Um, I also usually like to ask, what are you looking for me to accomplish in the first 90 days, first six months, first year? getting a feel for what are their expectations, because then that's going to tell you about how they view your role. You know, if they're just looking for you to come on and just process things transactionally day to day, and there's nothing strategic about it, that tells you part about how they are going to view trade compliance, right? Versus if they have ideas about how they want you to take their trade compliance program forward to be able to do more things for their, their company, then that's a totally different environment that you're going to be in. I like I like that. I would want to reiterate to people interviewing to be in trade compliance, you need to make a, an educated decision because my biggest career mistake was joining, I joined a company for two weeks and quit um, and the red flags were there and I ignored them. The position was open. The last person was in there for two weeks and quit as well. They told me to classify by looking up the description in the database and just using that classification. I was like, mm, I don't like any of this that's going on. So yeah, you really have to choose your company uh, wisely. Even a bad job can give you good experience because you know you you think about it. You you might you might be in a bad role for a little while and you're gonna you're gonna be in a difficult situation. But I bet you still learn some things and you get better at sales pitches. I think that's part of what being in an organization that doesn't value compliance, you really have to step up your game in terms of how you sell trade compliance. Uh, and so then it can, can be a developmental role uh, in that kind of a sense. So you, you can still get some good experience and, and at least some very good stories out of some, some bad jobs. I wanted to talk about leadership and or mentoring, whichever one you feel like you have a better opinion, a, a bigger opinion on, um, because I want me personally, I want to grow as a leader. And so I'd like to hear, you know, what other people's theories are on leadership, how, how to prove that I am a leader or how to gain leadership experience and how to be a good leader. And then mentoring, I wanted to to help out some of these people who have reached out to me, and I, I just don't know how to do that or what I should say and all of that. So any guidance um, would be great. Sure. And in terms of leadership, I'm a big believer in ser a servant leadership model. I think that servant leadership is something that works really well for when you're leading a team. And I think it also works very well for trade compliance because you are typically of a function within the business where your customers are truly internal customers. You're, you're there to protect the company, but also to serve the business. And so I think a servant leadership model works really well for that in terms of establishing yourself within the organization as someone that you that people want to come to and talk to versus you know what we talked about earlier of this police mindset of that you're just going to tell them no or slap their hands. And so I try to really, when I'm in a new organization, establish myself as someone that people uh, recognize as a subject matter expert, but are willing to come to and ask questions of and in really coming from a place of trying to help. So looking at the, the how can we get to a yes? If you are that mindset of, I want to help you, I want to help the business, I just want to do it compliantly. And I think a lot of times that you're able to establish um, credibility and establish good relationships with those internal customers 
so that they do come to you, they do involve you, and you're not learning about things after the fact and then dealing with violations. So I think a servant leadership model, to me, works really well for our field, and it's something that, that I try to employ, and I find it works very well with my team as well, looking at how I can support them and make them successful, and then I am successful through their success. Um, so in terms of mentoring, I think a lot of that really, to me, it's on the mentee. If you're seeking out a mentor, it's for the mentee to really know why do you want a mentor and what are you looking to get out of mentoring? So I, I mentor a couple of people right now. And one of the things that I always ask people when they come to me and ask me to be a mentor is, what is it that you want to get out of mentoring? Why did you approach me to be your mentor? Right? Because I want to get a feel for what their goals are and, and why they thought that I would be a good mentor to them. Uh, because sometimes they might have goals where it's not necessarily something that I can help them with, right? I come from a trade compliance background. And so then if, if they're coming to me and saying, well, I really want to get into this financial analyst role, I'm probably not the best person to help you with that, right? I just don't have the experience in that area. But if they're coming to me and they want to uh, they want to move up within a, a global logistics position or trade compliance position, or perhaps they just want more you know, advice on, on how to be a leader or how to improve some of their leadership skills. Those are things that I, I would feel like uh, I can help them with and, and be appropriate. And then I think from there, being a mentor, it's going to be about really listening to what your mentee is, is saying and giving them a perspective that they can't get themselves being kind to someone sometimes is being really honest with them. And so you want to help them see weaknesses or gaps or development areas that maybe someone else is not alerting them to. A lot of times leaders, I think, uh, can be a little reticent to actually give constructive criticism to the people that are on their team because they find that to be a difficult conversation. They don't want to uh, they don't want to make waves. They don't want to damage a, a relationship or feel like the person's going to be upset with them by saying that. And so then you should assume that your mentee may not know that they have those development areas. And that's part of the kindness that you do to them as a mentor by helping them to see that and guiding them through how to how to get better at those areas. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time and your advice. I loved hearing about all of the different uh, aspects of your career, um, especially the export side. I don't have a lot of experience in it, so it's always just interesting to see the flip side of the coin, right? So thank you for that. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the invite, and uh, I hope that your your listeners enjoy some of the, the stories and uh, look forward to uh, continuing to connect with you.